Well, it's fall, like Aaron had talked about. School has begun, whether we like it or not. <laughs> and Starbucks has reintroduced salted caramel and pumpkin drinks. Have you been there yet? And uh, also, I was in Walmart the other day, and the first display is the Halloween costumes already, which I can't believe. It's getting darker a little earlier, and football season has begun. <laughs> There's some game on tonight. I don't know about it, but... Now, Joel and I, as long as we've been doing campus ministry, football season runs parallel to the start of our busy season as well, to the start of our ministry kickoff. And a few weekends ago, we helped some freshmen move in at Edinburgh University, and then we hosted a huge barbecue on campus where we had almost 300 Edinburgh students come by to that barbecue. Isn't that awesome? And they heard about what Kyle was. Um, we launched our brand new service on campus. We've been talking about that, uh, kind of our transition out of the summit onto campus. We've had two worship services already, and small group Bible studies are in full swing. So there's a lot happening out there uh, at Edinburgh with Kyle In college ministry, we, we named our, our week Fourth Down Territory. Because in college ministry, we are always operating in Fourth Down Territory. The campus is a, a critical area. It's the red zone for us. Every play could change the game. Now, there's a debate among football coaches everywhere whether uh, fourth down attempts at scoring are a good decision. Because if you punt, it's a safer and easier option. In fact, um, Brian Burke, he's the president of the Advanced Football Statistics, did a study on the topic. I looked the statistics up. They're pretty boring for me. But he, he concluded, <laughs> this is what I got from it, that it made statistical sense to go for it on fourth and down. Statistically, the teams made it. Coaches don't often do it, though, because it comes with a lot of criticism, and it comes with a lot of risk. It might not work. And as you know, if the team scores and wins the game, the coach gets all the praise. But if the team loses, the coach gets all the criticism. Today, we just want to share with you quickly a few ways that we attempt victory in college ministry, that as we live in the middle of that fourth down play every day, we want to tell you about the risks we take and why we choose to take them. So first, we attempt to help students discover their identity. That's the first risk we take on campus, to discover their identity. How many of you have ever seen those identity theft commercials where they're like, there's this big like hairy man like on a tractor, and then he talks and like a little girl's voice comes out? You know what I'm talking about? You remember those? And you're like, oh. Because um, his identity is stolen. <laughs> now, knowing who you are is important. Your identity matters because it affects the way you act, the way you think, the way you deal with your circumstances. And on campus, one of our first goals is to help students clarify their identity. For example, uh, when your father here in reality didn't treat you right, when he, when he shut you down or, or trampled your dreams or made promises he didn't keep, it's tempting to be bitter, to, to eternally distrust, distrust men in your life, or maybe if you are a man, to have a gripping fear of becoming just like him. And in those moments, knowing who you are is important. And we tell them that your identity is found in Romans 8, 14 through 15, that you're a child of God and you can call him Father. And that father will never shut you down. He'll never break a promise. He'll never squash your dreams. When growing up, maybe all they were taught was the motions of church, singing empty songs, following examples of people who said one thing and, and did another. And God may have been painted to them as someone who is disinterested or, or not relevant. 
certainly not worth changing your habits for. And maybe they tried to understand him a few times, but were left more confused than when they started. In that case, knowing who you are is important. And we tell them that their identity is found in John 15. You are Christ's friend. And Christ, like your best friend in reality, is interested in being part of your life. He is the one who you can experience great joy with, who, you can, who understands your pain. And you know what? You were right all along. Jesus isn't found in monotonous songs and empty, empty worship. After I became a Christian for a long time, I made the mistake of calling myself a sinner saved by grace. You probably kind of heard that's like a churchy term. And uh, what's wrong with that phrasing? Well, I read once that after you become a Christian, you're not a sinner anymore. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Knowing who you are is important. You're a saint through and through. You are a saint who deals with sin with repentance. Did you know that if you catch a small shark, not in Lake Erie, but somewhere, and you can find it in an aquarium, it will never outgrow that aquarium. In fact, um, it will stay proportionate to the aquarium. So if sharks can end up being only six inches long, because that's how big their aquarium is, but if they were put into the ocean, they would grow to be eight feet to their full capacity. Sharks' physical maturity can be stunted based on their circumstance. When we carry around the wrong identity, when we, when we believe something about ourselves that we are not, it keeps us like a shark in the aquarium, unable to grow, unable to mature in Christ. And the scripture says if you are committed to a relationship with Christ, you are no longer a sinner. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a saint. And we need to live in that and act in that and walk in that mercy and that grace like we practiced this morning. And in order to grow spiritually, we have to know who we are in Christ. We must understand our identity in him. This will change the way we act, the way we think, the way we deal with our circumstances. We don't want to be six-inch little sharks swimming around in a puddle when we could uh, be, you know, to our full potential because we never knew our identity. Okay, one of the things I learned about college students over the past eight years is they watch Christmas movies all year round. Am I right? All right, do any of you do that? <laughs> That's your thing with college student. So there's a Christmas movie um, that I watch all year round, and it's uh, about once upon a time on a Christmas Eve, an orphan boy crawled into Santa's bag of gifts and was taken to the North Pole. Do you know what I'm talking about? Raised by Papa Elf, Buddy comes to realize he doesn't fit in with other elves. Determined to find a place where he belongs, Buddy searches for his real dad in New York City. It's Buddy the Elf. Anyone seen the movie? If not, go home today before the Steelers play and watch it. All right. So in the Big Apple, while this is happening, Buddy finds out why his dad is on the naughty list. And uh, he sees that the world is lacking in Christmas spirit seriously. And the belief in Santa, which is causing all kinds of problems. So with the help of his beautiful department store elf, Buddy tries to teach his dad and the world the meaning of the Christmas spirit and prove to everyone that Santa really does exist. Now, every time that they get um, someone to believe in Santa, they have this broken sleigh problem, okay? And the sleigh flies a little bit. I won't spoil it. But the way that they measured uh, the Christmas spirit is by something called the clausometer. I have a picture of it here. Here it is. Okay, so when the clausometer is at full tilt, see, it's all the way there to 100 The sleigh flies. I'll let you watch the rest. Now, I believe pretty firmly that somewhere inside of my 
complicated heart is something that looks a little bit like a clausometer. <laughs> that it's something that gauges my fight to go on, something that measures how fully I will live out my purpose for existence on this planet. And I can feel it on the inside, and I think you guys can too. When that clausometer is at full tilt in one direction, that's when people in my life are saying, I believe in you. You can do this. You you are created for this. You can accomplish this. And when it's all the way on the other end, it's when people are criticizing me because I went for the fourth down and didn't make it, you know? When I was a senior in high school, um, pastor shared a little bit about this in the past. I was a fairly new believer, and the youth pastor here was Kevin Taylor. Um, many of you may remember him. Oh, yes. And I would hang on every word. I think I wrote down every sermon he ever preached, like word for word, you know. And one Wednesday night, he told us that our friends needed to hear the message of Jesus, that their eternity was hanging in the balance, and it was imperative that they were exposed to the person of Jesus. And I was kind of under the impression that if, like, your pastor told you to do something, you did it. I don't don't know. (laughs) But, and so I said, okay. So I went back to my high school, and I invited people to my youth group. A, A small group of us, Joel was part of that amazing time of my life, we just invited people, invited people. I mean, it wasn't very complicated. We just invited people. And Pastor Kevin would tell us every week how much he believed in us. And he didn't give us like a playbook or a strategy or a, okay, this is how you should do it, whatever. He just kept repeating, 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 I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the way you're taking God's commandment seriously. I'm proud of you that, that, that you are, are doing what God's telling you to do. It doesn't matter if they're saying no, I'm proud of you. And he just continued to speak encouragement and, and, and four simple words into my life. I believe in you, I believe in you, I believe in you, over and over. In our senior year of high school, our graduating class was about 150 and about 60 of those students came to youth group. I mean, Unbelievable. Many of them came to understand who Christ was for the first time. In fact, a dozen of them are serving in full-time ministry today due to that small beginning. And it's all because Pastor Kevin just said, hey, guys, I believe in you. Then I went to college, and I got involved in this cool group called Chi Alpha, and I loved it. It was fun. It was relevant. It was worshipful. There's some good-looking boys there. And um, I served as a small group leader. Um, I did, was on various committees and teams and, you know, filled in the gaps that they needed and things. And one afternoon, my campus pastor, his name is Glenn, he just said to me, Nicole, you're made for this. I see these gifts in you. I believe in you. And I thought, well, I don't know about that. I mean, this whole support raising thing is for the birds, you know. I haven't been a Christian very long. I don't even really know that much about the Bible. And Glenn just said, I, I believe in you. I think you can do this. And so he taught me how to read the Bible and study the Bible. He taught me how to counsel someone through a crisis. He, he taught me how to run a PowerPoint slide. He taught me how to write messages. And he would say, you know, if you forget what you're going to say when you're preaching a message, you just walk back to your notes, you repeat what you're going to say, you just rock back until you see it again, and then you just repeat what you're going to say. <laughs> That's just what taught me. And it works. <laughs> and, and, and if... If, uh, if he, did, he just told me you're cut out for this, you can do it, I believe in you. And here I stand. In Mark 1, oh. <laughs> um. all right, so in Mark chapter 1, John came and he's baptizing people in the desert, okay, and he's preaching um, this repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And these people are coming. And in verse 9, it reads, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And you might remember the story. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, heaven, heaven itself, tears open. And the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven says this, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. God could have said anything. He had a captive audience. Heaven was torn open. You know what God chose to say? I believe in you. It's as if he was saying, this is public affirmation for my son. You can do this. And I don't know, but, but I can't imagine how much this public affirmation meant to Jesus that in those times to come when, when, when he was lonely and tempted and, and hanging on the cross and, and everyone was against him at times, I can only imagine how many times he went back in his head to that moment when he thought, all right, my father says he believes in me. He split the heavens open to tell everybody, hey, check this out, this is my son, and he can do what I called him to do. And I, I do really believe that the Spirit of God today is wanting to affirm many of you in the same way. That God is going to show you just how much he believes in you. And you know, it meant a lot for me to know Glenn and Pastor Kevin were rooting for me. And, but, but, but when we can understand that, that God believes in us, our internal clausometer is off the charts. Nothing can stop us. And that's the message we take to the college students. That nothing can stop you. God believes in you. Your identity is secure in him. And I want to um, introduce a, a dear friend of mine that I believe in with all my heart. And I'm really glad she would share today. And Aaron, will you come up? Will you guys give a round of applause? This is Aaron. background. Again, I'm Erin. Um, I grew up in a town with about mm, 300 people, so about as many people that are here. <laughs> um, I go to Edinburgh. I'm a communications major there. Um, but before I started my first semester, um, I lost one of the best people in my life. Um, my uncle died in a tragic uh, plane crash right like the day before I came to school. Um, but the first night that I spent at college, I was writing Bible verses on decals on my wall, to put on my wall. And um, I knew that coming close to Jesus was the only way I was gonna overcome the grief that I spent, um, or that I had. However, um, after a few days of being there and not really have connecting with the church, um, Jesus seemed sort of lame and the devil seemed to be where it was at. Um, I spent my first weekend of college uh, throwing up from drinking too much alcohol in front of a bunch of people I didn't know. I continued to live this way for most of my first semester. I left the path of walking with Jesus and started to hold hands with the devil. Drinking and drug addiction started to rule my life and I had never felt better. I never thought about my dad leaving my mom and I four years prior. I stopped worrying about classes, but most of all, I had almost forgotten about my uncle's death. 
this was all great <laughs> until one night um, I became se- I was sexually assaulted after surprisingly not drinking or having any drugs in my system. This was only sort of a wake-up call. I finished the semester up and came home from winter or came home to winter break completely satisfied. But as the week started to pass, I started to feel a big gaping hole in my heart. One night, after no church for months, no one talking to me about it, and no one yelling at me for my decisions, I looked over at my Bible that was covered in dust, and I opened it. To this day, I couldn't tell you what I read, because two sentences in, I lost all control, and Jesus completely consumed me. I started to weep, and again to this day, I had never had a more sound sleep. After that night, I didn't really think about it again and attributed it to just needing a cry. A few more weeks passed and I didn't, um, I didn't have that gaping um, hole anymore as much, but something still just didn't feel right. I went back to school and attended the first party of the semester. I literally felt like I could see demons walking around the party. And this used to be my home. And I felt completely uncomfortable. I ran out of the party and went to my room. And I cried that night and stayed in my room the rest of the weekend. The next week, I was getting a smoothie in our student center on campus. And I saw some Jesus freaks worshiping on campus. And uh, they called themselves Chi Alpha. I felt something I hadn't felt in a long time. We Jesus freaks, we call it conviction. (laughs) So I walked in, but absolutely made sure I gave an excuse prior to leave so I didn't have to stay the whole time. Uh, When some Jesus freak woman stood up (laughs) at the beginning and introduced herself as Nicole. She said they were going to DC for the that weekend for a convention and that feeling that was so unfamiliar rose up in me, that conviction. So I hesitantly hesitantly stood up from worship because I was actually having a good time, walked back and told Nicole that I wanted to go to DC. Now remember, I was going to DC with uh, with a group of students I had never met to a place I had never been. And worst of all, I was going with a bunch of lame Christians that couldn't possibly have anything in common with me. So Friday came and I loaded up in a crowded school bus and I was on my way. It was, it took forever. Anyone that went on that trip knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, fast forward to today. Today I'm a Chi Alpha leader. I lead a Bible study on campus. I can't, in a sense, say that Chi Alpha saved me, but it certainly put me on the right road to salvation. Every every step I have taken towards Jesus, that means losing all my friends I made the first semester, moving out of my room with a roommate that was like a sister, but continued to facilitate me in sin, and eating alone for a few weeks. All of that has been with the backing of Chi Alpha. 
Alpha showed me what Christians are and how to be one. I want to encourage all of you, before you judge the drunk girl at a party, before you judge somebody doing drugs, before you judge a promiscuous one, I'm living proof that what a little encouragement, what a little love, what a little prayer can do for somebody. Today, today I stand before you as a sinner, as someone who stumbles on a daily basis, as someone who would still be lost without the continued support and guidance of my family in Chi Alpha. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Well, just, just a little over a week ago, thousands of college students across the country made their way to our college campuses for, for the very first time. And this included a brand new class of freshmen at Edinburgh University, where we have our Chi Alpha group. And I want to tell you just some of the realities about this year's freshman class. Most of these students were born in 1994. I know some of you have cars <laughs> older than that. These students have never needed a paper airline ticket and probably have never used a bound set of encyclopedias. These are the most tribal students we have seen yet, and they despise being away from their friends. They watch TV more often than not on devices other than their television. And I read just last week that up to 25% of them have already suffered hearing loss. Since they've been born, the postage stamp has increased by 16 cents. That'll get me going, man. (laughs) These students have always lived in cyberspace, and they're addicted to their gadgets. I would argue that probably 60% of them carry an an iPhone or an iPad, some sort of Apple product. And we find these students doubting America's economic future, and they question if college will pay off for them. In the biblical sources of terms such as forbidden fruit, the writing on the wall, the Good Samaritan, and the promised land are really unfamiliar and unknown to them. And we know that these students have been given a false impression of who Christ is. Many of them don't hold to a biblical worldview, and they reject a biblical worldview. And we find many of them wondering if they even need morals. So we find these students to be more skeptical of the person of Christ and religion than ever before. And they may be skeptical because of how someone in their life represented Christ, or maybe even how the media has portrayed Christ, or maybe for some other reason. I think all of us would agree, though, that we have seen the message of Christ be distorted and misrepresented, and sometimes even leveraged for selfish gain. And as a result of that, the attitudes of these students towards Christianity and religion, they're sometimes full of anger, resentment, and animosity. Or sometimes they're just simply indifferent and confused. Regardless of how they feel, or regardless of why they feel how they feel, These are the students that we are called to love. These are the students that we are called to show the very love that we've experienced uh, to them. And these are the skeptics on campus 
that we try to reach. So in fourth down territory, our second point we attempt to do is to love the skeptic. And as we minister on campus, one of the wins that we quantify, one of the things that we measure if we're doing well is how much we can love the skeptic or how much we can engage the lost. And to our student leadership, we pose a question, something along these lines. What if these students would feel invited and welcome into our group long before they believed what we believed, looked like we looked, or talked like we looked, or even before they understood all the things about Christianity? And we asked them, how long would it take if they joined our community to actually get it, to see an accurate representation of who Christ is, and to experience the very love of Christ that we've experienced? I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Nick. Nick is the master at card tricks. He's an Edinburgh student. And um, uh, I asked Nick to share this morning a little bit about his journey towards Jesus. Would you welcome him? Well, I wouldn't call me a master at card tricks, first of all. (laughs) But I enjoy doing them in my free time. Um, I'm Nick. I'm a computer science major at Edinburgh University. And I started coming to Chi Alpha probably nine months ago, ten months ago. And I came because my friend Tyler was talking to me about it one day. And he introduced me to a bunch of people that went and that were friends of his. And I became friends with them. So I decided to go. And I was really nervous. I didn't know anything about it. All through high school, I was agnostic. So I didn't believe one way or the other. And upon coming to Chi Alpha, I made so many new friends and friendships that I'll have for the rest of my life with people that I love to be around. And so the first like four or five months, I kind of just sat there and absorbed everything. I didn't really know how to worship or any of that. So I just took it all in and kind of acted like I knew what I was doing, even though I really didn't. Um, Because I was kind of afraid to let people know that I was agnostic. I didn't really know how they would feel about me. But when they found out about that and when they learned how I really was, it didn't bother them. And so I kind of opened up even more because of that. And because of the encouragement, all the friends I had made was, were giving to me. Um, and then in February, as Aaron was saying, the winter retreat, my friend Tyler went on that. I didn't go, but he went on that, and he met Aaron. And the week, uh, the next Chi Alpha after they got back from that, uh, Tyler gave me and Aaron a ride to Chi Alpha. And... Me and Aaron clicked right away. We were joking around, laughing, having a really good time. We were singing songs on the way to Chi Alpha. And we just started talking more and more and more. And now she's my girlfriend. Shh. <laughs> 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 and, uh, Because of her, it really opened my eyes to becoming a Christian. Um, It made me think about it a lot more and just opened me up to it a lot more than I had been for 
the last however long I had been going to Chi Alpha. And then summer came, and I had to go back home, which is only an hour away. But I worked for Pepsi, and it kept me busy six days a week for 10 hours a day. So I didn't have time to come out to Chi Alpha or really delve deeper into my faith. So it kind of wasn't going anywhere for a while. But uh, one day, towards the very end of summer, I was able to come back to Chi Alpha. And during the message we were having, I went back and I asked Joel if we could talk afterwards. And he said, definitely, I would love that. So I went back and sat down, and the message got over, and I found Joel, and we went, and we found a spot, and we talked. And on August 16th, 2012, after about nine months of going to Chi Alpha, I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. part of a family that I will love and cherish for the rest of my life. Good job. Thank you, Nick. Nick came to our group for almost a year before he made any commitment to Christ. He was a skeptic, but praise God, now he believes he's living a committed Christ a committed life to follow Christ. And we're thrilled with his journey. See, I believe the things that are prim and proper about religion, they're not always vital for someone to live up to before they enter our group or community. And I believe Christ modeled this. Christ understood that there was a proximity that was required to speak life and truth to, to the lost, to the skeptic, on a genuine and intimate level. Look at his words to Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Christ is walking by. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. He invites himself over for dinner. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, tonight I'm coming over to your house for dinner. And the significant thing about this is that this wasn't approved of by the religious leaders of his time. But Christ wasn't afraid to dine with the dirty and unacceptable, no matter what people thought. And the love of Christ should push us to overcome any hesitation and should push us to engage the skeptics. Here's the bottom line. We all need the grace required to be rescued. Me first. Who are we to look at them and scoff or look at them with any kind of hesitation or withhold any kind of love and affection because they may be yet to accept the gift of grace that we've experienced. Romans 5 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The measure of Christ's love isn't just measured by the significance of the sacrifice, but it's measured by our condition. It's not just the fact that it was a horrific death that he suffered on the cross for our atonement. It's the fact that he did it while we were still in a sinful state, while we were still far from him, before we had yet to turn to him. He demonstrated his love by dying on the cross. And God calls us to look at the lost or the skeptic as Christ would. 
In a book I just finished, the author gave this quote. Regardless of what you see, love him. Regardless of what you expect, love. Regardless of what you will tolerate, remember, tolerance is not compromise. Tolerance gives us the platform and relational equity to be there. Christ was clear that we are called to invite all types of people to join this journey with us towards Christ, to join this community. And we are the community that carries his message to them. And for those that are tired, Christ said, come to me if you're tired and weary and I will give you rest. For those that feel judged, he said, I do not condemn you, nor does my Father in heaven. For those that are alone and lost, he said, I am the way. And for those that need to experience his heart, he said, I've come to serve you. So is this our message to the skeptic? Is our message the same as Christ's? Last semester, I was meeting with a guy on campus, and he was dealing with some things from his childhood, and really the progress um, had kind of stopped. And I was getting frustrated. I think I was pushing him a little harder than, uh, than I should have been, and we weren't getting anywhere. I really felt like, um, like we had totally just come to a screech and, uh, and stopped there. I emailed a buddy of mine about three pages, uh, the exact details of what I, he was going through. And I wanted my buddy to respond with specific things like, hey, when he says this, say this, or because he's dealing with this, take this approach. And my buddy emailed me back two sentences, and it was so good, I want to read it to you ver uh, verbatim. He said, dude. <laughs> you know it's good when he starts with dude. He said, dude, be Jesus to him. You may be the closest thing to Jesus this kid has ever seen. Just be Jesus to him, no matter how hard it might be sometimes. Two sentences back was all I needed to be reminded to keep building on that platform to speak life and truth to him, no matter where he was in his life. And our proper response to God's love in our life should be just that, to be Jesus. No matter what they believe, we must love them and make every opportunity to invite them into our world. Let's not expect them to adhere to what we believe before they come into our community. And let's not even expect them to realize that they're lost before they come into our community. I bet if I asked Nick um, last year, hey, do you need Jesus? Do you need a Savior? He probably would have said no. But man, he came into our community, and we saw that community work and change his life. And as we journey, let's invite others to join us. And Mark, Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And I believe that Jesus at the center of our lives pushes us to fulfill his plan for the lost. My question is, who will you invite? Who are the errands and the Nicks in your life that you will invite? And as a community, as we invite those into our community, I think we should ask the question, what do we do that makes them feel uncomfortable? The things we say, the things we do, how we dress, kind of the culture of our Christianity. Because I think the things of our Christian culture can sometimes make people who aren't part of our circles uncomfortable. And I think this becomes a tragedy because it's not the message of Christ that becomes offensive because we know that that message is that message in and of itself can be offensive. But it's a tragedy when our Christian culture becomes offensive. And I think if we don't ask that question, if we don't assess ourselves, we become in danger of becoming exclusive. We communicate, no skeptics allowed. 
Or if you don't believe, stay out. I think oftentimes we don't do this intentionally, but by not constantly examining our behavior and examining how we're communicating, then I think we fail to know exactly how our actions and speech make the non-believer feel. So asking the question, what is our Christian culture communicating to the skeptic helps us stay focused in reaching them with love. So how do we communicate the gospel in this particular place at this particular time to this particular people? The message is the same. Our God is the same, but certainly our methods can change. 2012, to communicate the gospel message, question mark. How do we communicate life, hope, encouragement, redemption? I believe that the simplest message of Jesus loves you is so profound. It is eternal and life-giving in its pure sense, and it encompasses so much. And my encouragement to us this morning is that we would connect and communicate Christ's unfailing love to those that we have been entrusted with. And I think the loudest way to say Jesus loves you is to demonstrate it. Make time and space in your life for people. This is what we do on campus. For God to show up, make a meal, shovel a driveway, give a ride, buy someone's groceries, serve someone, express God's love in a radical way to your neighbor, your coworker, your teacher, your boss, your family, and those you come in contact with every day of your lives. This brings me to our third point to advance the Reformation. The mantra of the first Reformation was by faith alone. And this mantra was to fight the belief that there were certain traditions that had to be maintained uh, to reach salvation. And the idea that things like buying indulgences to get relatives out of purgatory. And we know that Luther was the man for the job. He nailed his 95 theses to the door on the castle church and he ushered us into the Protestant Reformation. Now I believe that every generation needs a reformation But I believe that the next Reformation won't be initiated by just one person like Luther. Nor do I believe that it will be initiated by a single event. I believe it will be led by a movement. A group of people who will live so compassionately and courageously for the cause of Christ. And I believe that the driving force behind the next Reformation will be the love of God. A love that is so full of compassion and wonder full of curiosity and energy. And Nicole and I pray that out of our community at Edinburgh and out of the community here at the church, the young adult group that's meeting, and out of you guys will come and will birth the next reformation, a movement of people that will be so in love with Christ that everything else in this world seems to fade. Now Luther recounted the tipping point of his theology. He was teaching out of the book of Romans to a university class at the University of Wittenberg. And he came to the scripture, the just shall live by faith. And Luther said, this passage of Paul became to me the gate of heaven. And out of that, the mantra by faith alone or justification by faith was born for the first reformation. And the tipping point for Luther, it wasn't a discovery of anything new, but rather it was the rediscovery of the ancient primal truth that Christ taught his disciples hundreds and hundreds of years before. And it was the radical application of this recovery that ushered us into the Reformation. My question is, what will the next rediscovery and radical application of truth look like for us? I believe our highest calling and something we can't miss this morning is found in the greatest commandment, 
Matthew 22, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So the new reformation becomes the radical application of Jesus' command to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And I believe that the mantra to this next reformation will simply be to love God, to love God, to love God, to love God. And I believe that out of this community, we can birth a movement that will love God more than anything else in this world. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, is who he says he was. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, did miracles, suffered an atoning death on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and one day will return for his church. In this Jesus that I speak of, he loves you and he loves me. And this Jesus loves all mankind. And our proper response to him loving us is to love him back and to connect and communicate that love to all mankind. And I believe this morning that Holy Spirit invites us to be part of something bigger than we are, to be part of the next reformation to advance his kingdom, to be the movement of people that will love God more than anything else in this world, and to find the next Aaron and Nick's. I pray that we say yes to that invitation. As I was praying this morning, I, I felt, as I even spoke about engaging the skeptic, I felt that there was a word for someone this morning. The very doubts that you have, if God loves you, uh, I feel like you process that cognitively, but I, I want to encourage you to take a step of faith because here's the deal. There's no accidents in life. You sitting here this morning and even making me go off my notes, which ask Nicole, I never do. God loves you so much to make me do that. He wants you to know that he loves you and he wants you to know that he hears that processing in your head. And as you have faith, take steps towards God. Know that God pursues you, the divine that created the universe. He loves you that much. I would ask that you would stand with me this morning, everybody. I'm going to pray a benediction over you, but first I'd like to remind the college students, young adult, we have lunch in the gym. If you can't find the gym, ask somebody where it is. If you have to help someone find the gym, you might as well stay down there and have a burrito with us. Limited quantities while supplies last. I also want to thank the church. Thank you, Pastor Jack. Not only for this service, but for the years of partnership we have. Chi Alpha wouldn't be where it was. We wouldn't have testimonies like Aaron and Nick's and the video on there without the partnership with this church. And we're excited for the future as we reach out to Edinburgh. And as the Franos take over the Tuesday night service, we believe that God has ordained our steps and that he has a tremendous plan uh, for his kingdom to advance. So thank you. I want to thank the sponsor of the lunch as well uh, for providing the food. We appreciate it so much, the investment in college students and young adults. So if you would maybe close your eyes and take a posture of receiving, I want to pray this benediction over you. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide 
and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week. Thanks for coming to church today.